Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 16 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled Persecution and the Growth of the Church in Samaria, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? Well, we've said again and again that the uh, the theme verse for the entire book of Acts is Acts 1.8. Uh, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, uh, today we're going to look at the movement of the gospel from Jewish only to including the Samaritan people. And we're going to see the power of the gospel to unite people who were ancient enemies, who really couldn't stand each other. Um, but we're going to see the uni- unification of the church by the sovereign activity, the very unusual activity of God, of re- refraining from giving the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Samaritans until the apostles arrived from Jerusalem, just Mm. unifying the church so beautifully. We're also going to see an interesting encounter with a man named Simon the Sorcerer and how we're going to see very vigorously how money cannot play a role in the in the establishment of church leaders and the spreading of the gospel. And so we're going to see all that today. Let me go ahead and read Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25, beginning with Saul's reaction to the execution of Stephen. And Saul approved of his execution. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. 
You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Andy, what do we learn about Saul's attitude concerning Stephen's death, and why does Luke tell us this at the beginning of chapter 8? Well, one of the great stories, clearly one of the great stories in the entire book of Acts is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus uh, from, from a hater of the gospel and of the church to the Apostle Paul, who did more than any human being ever to build the church. Um, It's told three times. So it's clearly emphasized in the book of Acts. This is a benchmark. The fact that, that, that this godly man, Stephen, whose face looked like the face of an angel and who had such a Christ-like disposition to his persecuting murderers, really. Uh, you know, uh, Father, he said, do not hold this sin against them. Uh, it's just incredible um, that he hates Stephen and Christians so much that he's giving consent to his murder. Um, so this will be a benchmark, and also we'll get the same thing in the next chapter when it says St- Saul is breathing out murderous threats against the Lord, Lord and his disciples. So he's there giving approval to his death. That's who he was at that point. In other words, from his heart, he agreed that this was the right thing to do mm. to murder this man. Keep in mind, they'd not been able to refute Stephen's arguments. So it's just interesting, the, the twisted, devious, wicked nature of the unconverted human heart. How does Luke describe the details of this first persecution that arises, and what's the significance of the fact that the apostles were not scattered from Jerusalem? Right, so it's a massive persecution. It's it's very, very serious. Um, we're going to talk in a moment about Saul's involvement in it, but uh, it, it, you know, just many, many people are being arrested and um, hauled off in, into prison. And it's very significant that the apostles, the, the church was scattered, so that's a pretty big deal. Uh, you know, you're not able to live in your homes anymore, um, but they're they're scattered throughout. But you know, it's it's just interesting. Uh, they're they're like seeds. Mm. Uh, you know, they're just being scattered everywhere, and everywhere they go, they preach the word. Mm. And the significance of the apostles not being among those who are scattered shows that this was a lay people's movement. Wow, this was not the leaders that were sharing the gospel. They were. But um, the the regular common men and women, the brothers and sisters in Christ, were spreading the gospel. And so we're going to find out in heaven how much ordinary people were involved in the spiritual conquest of the Roman Empire. Three centuries of gospel advance carried on by tradesmen and housewives and, you know, relatives traveling to see other relatives and all kinds of stuff that could never make it into the pages of history, just very ordinary things as they were going, sharing the gospel. And so uh, it's very significant that the church was scattered, but not the apostles. I wonder if you'd talk for a moment about the courage it must have took for the devout men mentioned in verse 2 to bury Stephen and grieve openly for him. Yeah, there's obviously a guilt by association aspect, and this is going to be all the more uh, clear. Um, We definitely see it in the book of Hebrews where the author urges them to 
remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. Mm -hmm. And he says also, remember those early days with the gospel when you you, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your of your property and were publicly publicly stood with those who were being persecuted. Mm -hmm. So it's a definitely a guilt by association thing. And then frankly, the the authorities would use this as a a means of gathering uh, out of the out of hiding true Christians by arresting some key leaders, whoever showed up to feed them in prison or bring blankets to them or care for them, they're Christians too. And so to go and and publicly take the corpse of Stephen out of that pile of rocks and openly mourn for him, they're identifying themselves as Christians. Hmm. What does verse 3 teach us about Saul and his position with the Sanhedrin? And what effect do you think it had on Saul to drag off men and women and put them in prison? Saul began to destroy the church, it says, and he goes from house to house. And, and this, this, this image of him dragging men and women, dragging anybody, it's so degrading. And, and you know, Paul calls himself a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Mm. So he's a violent person here. And what was involved in dragging women? doesn't say he dragged their children. So he separated mothers from their children who must have been crying out and wailing as their mother was being arrested for being Christians. Mm. And, and to see what effect, you said, what effect did that have on him? You know, in, in Acts 26, when Jesus, uh, in the third accounting of his conversion, get one more detail, which was true in all cases, just not reported in Acts 9 and, and in Acts 22. But um, it was, uh, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Mm. So the goads are inducements leading Saul to be converted. And the, the searing effect it must have had on his conscience and the, and the, and the, the painful effect of these innocent, godly, simple, loving people, you know, Jewish people who believe that Jesus was the Messiah must have had eventually a converting effect on, on Saul. In verses 4 through 8, we're introduced to Philip and his ministry to Samaria. What does verse 4 teach us about the effect of the persecution on the church as a whole? And who is doing the preaching in this verse? You mentioned a little bit sure. earlier the significance of the apostles staying in Jerusalem, but who's doing the preaching? Here? Well, it's the other side of the equation, and I assumed it in the answer I gave, but yeah. here it is. It's those who had been scattered preached the word, and we know from the earlier verse that was not the apostles. So this was a layperson's evangelistic explosion, mm. and they were preaching the word wherever they went. And now uh, Philip, who was one of the seven that we may, met at the beginning of Acts 6, the second in greatness to Stephen. So Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith and had this zealous ministry, but now along comes Philip, and he also had a very powerful ministry. Yeah, so it's amazing. This this persecution that's meant to to quell this Christian movement, uh, in fact, has the opposite effect and scatters the Christians with Philip among them. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about Philip. What mm -hmm. can we learn from the fact that now that Stephen is dead, another of the seven of Acts 6 gets raised up in his place? Right. So the ministry that they did in making certain that the Greek-speaking widows were not being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, that was not all they did, uh, clearly. Stephen had a very powerful ministry. He went to the synagogue of the freedmen, Jews from Cyprus, Cyrene, Cilicia, other places, and he reasoned with them and proved from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. He had a very 
doctrinal, powerful gospel presentation Stephen did. Uh, but Philip also has this powerful ministry, and he's going to a city in Samaria, and he's proclaiming the Christ there. He's pro- proclaiming the, the, the Messiahship of Jesus of Nazareth. He's mm-hmm. preaching the gospel. And he's going to Samaria, and it's just very, very interesting because we know from John chapter 4, very plainly, that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But Philip was uh, willing to go and preach the gospel there in Samaria. Andy, tell us a little bit more about the division between Samaritans and Jews that we see in this chapter, because it's a it's a big deal for them, and it, it yeah. might be lost on us how significant it really was that the gospel was breaking into this place. All right, so the clearest statement, as I said, John 4, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, but there's a lot of backstory. It has to do with the two different exiles um, of the Jews, and the first exile was by the Assyrians, and the northern, the, the more apostate kingdom uh, of the Jews uh, was taken off by the Assyrians. They they were unbelievers for the most part um, from the get go. When uh, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, set up the 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 gold the golden calves or whatever that were their gods, so to speak, and they set up their own priesthood. It was not Levitical priesthood. Anybody who wanted to be a priest would be paid by the king to be a priest, and they just set up their own idolatrous religion. They went apostate immediately. Mm. And though there were occasionally godly uh, people and occasionally godly. Um, you know, prophets like Elijah and all that that would that would go and minister in the northern kingdom. For the most part, they were apostate, and sooner or later, uh, the patience of God ran out. The Assyrians came in, and they went in the, into exile. Then the Assyrians willingly uh, settled um, some Jews with with Gentiles, and they all mixed together, and they worshipped many gods, and it became a kind of a a, a hybrid mongrel race. Uh, and and that included um, some that claimed to be Jews. There were Samaritans who only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the books of Moses, did not accept any of the history after that, did not accept any of the prophets. They, they were basically like apostate liberal types, but still claimed to be Jews. Mm. Uh, they all, we also know from John 4 that they worshiped at Mount Gerizim in, in a, a city in Samaria, uh, whereas the Jews said the only place to worship, the one place to assemble must be the city of David, must be at the temple where Jerusalem. So they had that division. So there was a, a great deal of, of animosity and hostility for Jesus to to give the ultimate example of that horizontal second great commandment, love for neighbor as the good Samaritan must have been scandalous that he would choose. Mm. I mean, what good could ever come out of Samaria? But here's this good Samaritan caring for somebody. And Jesus himself ministering to the Samaritan woman and to the Samaritan village, leading them all to Christ. Mm. He's laying the groundwork. We also have this interesting encounter with James and John, who are called Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And one of the reasons it seems they were called that at one point, like Elijah, they wanted to call down fire on a Samaritan village that would not allow Jesus to come in. And the reason they would not allow Jesus to come into their village is that he was determined to go from there on to Jerusalem. And so they didn't want any part of this Jewish man. Uh, and so James and John, they wanted to go full Elijah on them. And let's call down fire, like like Second Second Kings chapter 1, uh, which uh, Elijah did on a successive series of 50 men and a captain, you know, it's like, oh, let's do that. So there was a lot of a lot of animosity, a lot of hostility, a lot of hatred between Jews and Samaritans. So with this backdrop in mind, Philip boldly goes into Samaria and proclaims Christ. He makes Christ known uh, to the Samaritans. Mm-hmm. 
What does verse 6 teach us about the relationship between miracles and gospel preaching? And what was the effect of the miracles Philip performed in verses 6 through 8? Sure, it's a great question. And one of the most important things we have to learn, even as we're walking through uh, on Sunday mornings the gospel of Mark uh, and looking at the miracles of Jesus, they had a temporal function. Um, but they served eternity, if you can put it that way. Uh, they served eternity by proving the identity of Jesus, that mm. he was God in the flesh. Um, they also serve eternity here in the book of Acts um, by getting a hearing for the gospel. Uh, they were temporal. The miracles that were done were generally healings, um, and people, demons were cast out um, or you know, healings were done, as we'll see in verse 7. Uh, so the healings uh, definitely provided temporal relief for suffering people and showed the compassion of God. But what they did here, plainly, is they get a hearing for the gospel. Mm-hmm. We're going to see the same thing with Paul and Barnabas on their missionary trip, Paul and Silas on their missionary trip. These guys come in and do signs and wonders, and, and huge crowds gather. Mm-hmm. And now it's time to preach. And yeah. the same thing happened earlier in, in Acts 4 with Peter and John as they heal the lame uh, beggar in the Acts, sorry, Acts 3. And so he's walking, leaping, praising God, and the huge crowd gathers. So overtly with with Philip here, when they when they – when they saw the signs and wonders, they paid close attention to what he said. Hmm. So in verses 9 through 25, we come upon this encounter that you mentioned as the apostles deal with this Simon the sorcerer who were introduced to. Who was Simon, and how does Luke describe his life and effect Hmm. on the people before Philip came? So he was a practitioner of the dark arts. I mean, you think about the sorcerers in Egypt during the time of Moses who were able to replicate some signs and wonders, the, the early plagues. And then at some point they couldn't. They knew this was the hand of God. Um, so they're able, I think, through demonic power to do supernatural things. And mm-hmm. so demons from time to time are permitted by God. You think about that hedge of protection where God puts up that sluice gate and allows some 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 evil to flow in a certain direction. And so from time to time, demons are permitted to do some mischief and they're permitted to do some supernatural things. And so this man, Simon, had some power of sorcery, the ability to do some black magic. And so he amazed the people of Samaria. Um, and as it said, he boasted that he was someone great. He's He's got this tremendous power um, and he's able to do amazing things. And so everybody paid attention to him. And hmm. what does your translation say in verse 10? It's interesting. Mine's a little different, but go ahead. Verse 10 says, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, mm. saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. <laughs> Yeah, so what a slogan. All right, this man is the power of God that is called great. Um, and, and so he basked in this adulation, as we're going to see later in Acts 12, where Herod um, gives a speech mm. to some people who are beholden to him and want to suck up to him so that, that he continues to benefit them. And they say, this is the voice of a God, not of a man, this kind of thing. So Simon's kind of, he's getting adulation from the people. So that may help to answer why Simon's career before Philip came would make him want the power of the Holy Spirit, right? His motivation is to maintain this appearance of greatness, this appearance of power, and to have the people continue to pay attention to him. Right, and he was humble enough to recognize that the power of the apostles, and we'll get to them in a moment, they're going to come from Jerusalem for a certain purpose, but the power of the apostles was greater um, than uh, his power. Um, and, you know, he also saw Philip's miracles, the things he was doing. He was attracted by the spectacle. Mm. He was attracted by the amazing signs and all that. And Jesus was always um, negative 
toward people who only were attracted to the the wonder working and not to the kingdom behind it. But Simon seems to be that kind of a person. Uh, what's really challenging here is to understand uh, his belief or his faith in verse 12. Hmm. One author has spoken of power encounters in which practitioners of evil or demonic arts, Mm -hmm. uh, like you mentioned, like witch doctors, for an example, are powerfully displaced by the miracle-working power of the gospel. Would you characterize this encounter between Simon and the gospel preachers as a power encounter? Yeah, I think so. I think those things are seen in third world countries where demons uh, run amok and where you've got witch doctors, you've got, you know, a, a very spiritual way of looking at life. Just understand demons are every bit as active everywhere on earth. They just use different strategies. Generally, they want to hide. Generally, I, I liken them uh, in, in one sermon in Mark recently uh, as Jesus is uh, driving out demons everywhere uh, to cockroaches. You know, you flip on the light in the middle of the, of the, of the night and there they are running through the skittering mm. through the kitchen. Um, they're nasty. Uh, Jesus turned on the light. He was the light of the world. But generally, they operate in darkness. They're hiding. Mm. But yeah, I, I think uh, that's, that's fine. It's a power encounter where the gospel comes and, and Simon uh, sees the greater power of the gospel through Philip's miracles and then later through the apostles who came down from Jerusalem. What evidence does verse 12 give us for believers' baptism? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it says um, this is going to be the rhythm again and again and again in the book of Acts. There's no other. Belief first and then water baptism next. Mm. Um, So you never see anywhere in the Bible, um, you know, in the New Testament, any example, since you only see baptism in the New Testament, but um, you never see anywhere in the New Testament an example of infant baptism. So those would be individuals who are baptized first and then later come to faith. You just don't see that. It's always they hear, they believe, and they are baptized. That's um, that's what we see. And so Philip's an example of that as well, although we don't know the nature of his faith. Yeah, yeah you mentioned Simon's belief uh, a moment ago. What insights does Simon's case give us on perhaps relying on water baptism as proof of salvation? And how should we understand the statement that Simon believed that we see there in, in verse 13? Well, we get numbers of those examples of Simon believing. I said Philip earlier, sorry, but Simon believing um, – and uh, we don't know what he believed. Um, you know, we get this in John chapter 2. Many saw the signs and wonders Jesus was doing in Jerusalem at the feast mm. early, early, early in his ministry. Uh, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, he says, because he knew all – the text says because he knew all men. He did he, he did not need man's testimony about what was going on inside a man for he himself knew what was going on inside every man. Like in John 1 with Nathaniel where he said, here is a true Israelite in whom there is no guile, uh, nothing false. And so truly uh, Jesus can read people people's hearts and minds. And so therefore, the language of believed, it's not as simple. I mean, we do believe in justification by faith alone. So where faith is genuine, where faith is genuine, there is always justification. But James clearly in James chapter 2 brings up a kind of faith that cannot save you. Hmm. You know, suppose someone has faith but has no works. Can such a faith save him. So that implies there are different kinds of faith. James openly says it. You know, even the demons believe and they shudder. So that doesn't save them. Uh, There is no gospel for demons, but they're just different kinds of faith. Hmm. And so 
Simon believed something about Jesus, and he makes the profession of the faith and gets the water baptism, but it's pretty clear that that uh, Peter and John do not think he's converted. May your money perish with you, uh, et cetera. He, he said, I, I, and, and clearly they, they say, we can see that you're full of, of bitterness and captive to sin. That's not something you would say to a convert. So what we need to understand is, Faith is complex. Mm. Um, God knows what genuine faith is because he's the one that gives it. Um, And so there are numbers of people who can make verbal assents. They might even receive water baptism. And then later they apostatize. And we don't change our theology thinking, oh, I guess you can be justified, then later lose your justification. Mm. No, we just think that they made a, a, a some kind of an assent. They believed something. They had an initial joy, but it wasn't saving. In verses 14 through 17, we read of the apostles coming to Samaria. What's the purpose of this account of the apostolic visit to Samaria? And how do we explain the delay between the Samaritans' belief and their receiving the Holy Spirit in light of a verse like Romans 8, 9 that says anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him? Right. So some different things happen in the book of Acts that you get the feeling they really never happen again. Um, and, you know, we're, we're going to see this, especially with the giving of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And so here what's going on is the center of the Christian church in the world at that point, no doubt about it, is Jerusalem. The apostles were not scattered but continued their ministry in Jerusalem, and they are the leaders. They are the apostles, and so they have authority. And they want to be sure that what's going on is is accurate and right. I think they, they knew and trusted Philip. They'd entrusted him, obviously, along with the other six, uh, to that important, important role of making certain that the Greek-speaking widows were cared for in the daily distribution of food. Mm. They knew who Philip was, but they wanted to be sure that the work was genuine. They're later going to do the same thing in Antioch um, in Acts 11 when they send uh, Barnabas to be certain what's going on there. And so it's just a maintaining of a certain level of, of control and accuracy and health making certain that the churches are healthy. So they send Peter and John. And uh, the the issue here is the giving of the Holy Spirit. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit mm. because they hadn't yet received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it says that they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So they genuinely repented. They genuinely uh, confessed their faith in Christ. They were genuinely water baptized, but they didn't have the gift of the Holy Spirit yet. Now, we need to understand what this means. We're going to see the same thing in Acts 10 with Cornelius. The giving of the Holy Spirit came with with outward and visible signs, usually the speaking in tongues. Mm -hmm. It was the way that everyone knew that the spirit had come and that these people were genuinely converted. So that's how Peter and those with him knew that Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and his Gentile family and friends had become genuine members of the body of Christ, Mm. not having been circumcised. They just had received the gift of the Holy Spirit. We'll get to all that. So I think it is very similar to the day of Pentecost, a, a, a rushing, outpouring, powerful display of the Spirit that was obvious to everyone looking, and they began to speak in tongues. Now, the theological problem is, Romans 8 9 says, if you have not received the Spirit, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. So this was a temporary kind of one-off thing that happens here 
that is not the norm now. So Pentecostals, those that talk about second blessings, mm. you yeah, you're a Christian, but you haven't received the Holy Spirit. That's just not biblical. And this is this is not to be cited here as the normal pattern. So why did it happen this way this time? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that that terrible rift between Jerusalem and Samaria mm. is now being closed and healed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wow. There are Jews and Gentiles who will be together worshiping by the power of the Spirit. And so the Spirit had to be given through the laying on of Jewish apostle apostolic hands to the Jew first mm. and after that to the Gentile. And so uh, the this is the end of the hostility between Jewish Christians and, and Samaritan Christians. There would not be separate churches. It's going to be the same problem in the book of Romans with a Jew, Jewish church and a Gentile church. That cannot be. Yeah. They have to stay united. And so Paul works very hard in Romans 14 and other places to keep unity between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Yeah, it's such a powerful backdrop when you think about all that Paul will write. I was just thinking about Ephesians as you were mentioning that and that dividing wall of hostility being broken down and those who are far off being brought near. Just a, a beautiful picture of the power of the gospel to it is. provide it's, reconciliation. It's the answer, answer to all the divisions there are in the world, including mm. racism, black-white issues in our country. All of those things are solved. Mm. Genuinely solved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Simon sees all this. What was Simon's response, and what does it show us about his heart and his motives? Uh, he's His eyes are bugging out. He's like, wow, and it's a big display. Baptism of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, maybe some signs and wonders, some other things. He's like, wow, that's far beyond anything I've ever seen or could do. I want in. So you guys have a good gig going here, and I'd like to be part of it. So what does it show about his heart? Well, we can see very clearly from what Peter and John say to him what it says about his heart, that he's an unconverted man. Yeah. So look what he does. He says, I'm going to offer them money. <laughs> and uh, I mean, uh, and this this became known as simony. <laughs> uh, it was named for this. This was a regular uh, pattern in the medieval Roman Catholic Church mm. where people paid money for bishoprics or or other significant positions in in the uh, – I mean, these were like franchises. To be the Archbishop of Mainz mm. or to be the Archbishop of whatever, you are going to be rolling in the dough. So in order to get that franchise, you had to pay Rome for it. Wow. And so it was simony, and it's it's disgusting that that from the from the get go the Lord sets that aside and says no these things are not given with the payment of money it's absolutely apples and oranges money has a role to play it alleviates hunger it alleviates certain things we can build some buildings and all that but it has nothing to do with the gift of the Holy Spirit mm. or spiritual power and ministry. Why was Peter so severe then in his response to Simon? And what do we learn uh, about Simon further in, in verse 23? Well, I mean, he curses him. He says, may your money perish with you. That's a curse. That's a, May this terrible thing happen to you. Wow. All right, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Going back to the original uh, command that was given by Jesus to the apostles in Matthew chapter 10, he said, take no money for your for your uh, journey, no no money bag uh, for work, work, workers worth his keep. And then he said, don't charge anything for your healings. Freely you have received, freely give. So you're not going to get any money for this. Mm -hmm. The money has nothing to do with this powerful ministry you're going to yeah. go do. I've given you the gift freely. Now you go minister it freely. So Peter's just out of that same attitude saying, you know, you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry. Mm. You are out. You are not in. 
And then he calls on him to repent of his wickedness and to pray to the Lord. And then he said, perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart, for I can see that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. Basically, the offer of money showed Peter this was an unconverted man. Mm. He was he was full of bitterness, full of wickedness and captive to sin, and he, he urged him to repent. Andy, what do you make of Simon's response to Peter's stern rebuke and warning? Do you think Simon was genuinely repentant? I don't know. We'll find out when we get to heaven. We, sure. we hope that Simon's there. We have no further record of him at all. Hmm. Um, he just says, pray to the Lord for me. And um, if he t- followed Peter's advice that he repent of his wickedness and and go to the Lord and you know, receive forgiveness, then we'll find the man in heaven. But we just don't know. What does verse 25 teach us about the apostolic ministry in Samaria, and what final thoughts do you have for us on the passage we've looked at? So again, we have um, non-apostolic leadership here, Philip, moving out in a strong direction. The apostles didn't do it. Hmm. But then the apostles piggybacking on it and saying, okay, you know, I see God at work here. They're humble enough to say it doesn't matter that we weren't the trailblazers here. Philip was. But they preached the word in many Samaritan villages. Hmm. I mean – must have brought back memories. Jesus went through Samaria. Remember in John 4, the whole Samaritan village with the Samaritan woman went out, and so they were ready for this. But maybe they were holding back. The time was right. So they're preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages, and they're winning many people to the Lord. So again, what we get out of this section of Acts 8, we get the spread of the gospel. We get people being saved. We get a purification of the gospel methodology. It's not going to be money. Power of the Holy Spirit coming in a very unusual way to maintain unity between Jews and Samaritans and and make sure there's just one church of Jesus Christ. All of this is the marvelous work of the Holy Spirit in building the, the true church of Christ from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. This has been episode 16 in our Acts Bible Study podcast, and we want to invite you to join us next time for episode 17 entitled Philip and the Ethiopian Eunuch, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.